Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. We are picking up today in Revelation chapter 12. We will read all of Revelation chapter 12. Well, well, depending upon your translation, the, the first 17 verses, some some take the last or the first half of 13, one and tack it. Some translations tack it on to the end of verse 17 there or make it verse 18 of chapter 12. But we're going to stop in verse 17. Um, we have worked our way so far in the book of Revelation through three of the seven visions that are shown by God and given to Jesus and then on to John and then to us. Um, this fourth vision is a little bit different than the first three. Um, uh, the first vision had seven letters. The second vision had seven seals. The third vision had seven trumpets. The fourth vision is made up of a series of, I don't know, many visions, if you will, that do highlight the cosmic battle between God and Satan. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to how many many visions there are within the fourth vision? Seven, yes, seven. That is John's favorite number in the book of Revelation. It is one of the numbers of completion, showing that God has the complete history of the church and the world wrapped up in his sovereignty and in his plan. Um, there's also a shift in the second half of the book of Revelation, um, still on the persecution of the church oftentimes, but it is more on the spiritual elements of that persecution in the second half of the book rather than the human elements of that persecution, uh, the, the, the spiritual persecution of the church. And so with that in mind, let us look um, at Revelation chapter 12. Please take up your Bibles and follow along as I read. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous dragon, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on, its, on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, and her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert, a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brother who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. When the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. 
The woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the desert where she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time out of the serpent's reach. Then from his mouth the serpent spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off and and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Let us pray. To the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, how wonderful it is to know and to be comforted by the truth that you have chosen us from before the foundation of the world and have blessed us with all the blessings that are ours in Christ. You have given us these blessings so that we may be holy and blameless before you. We pray that your word would lead us to repentance and a greater knowledge of your nourishing protection. In Jesus' name, amen. How seriously do you take the words of Ephesians chapter 10 or 6, verses 10 through 12? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the ruler, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Seriously, how how seriously do you take those words? You know, some people take them maybe too seriously, and they attribute absolutely every bad thing that happens in their lives and in the world to the work of the demons behind every bush. Others affirm the reality and presence of spiritual forces of evil because the Bible does say that they exist. And, you know, we have to believe everything the Bible says, but they live as if there are no spiritual forces of evil at work in this world. Regarding this verse and the question behind it, Lisa Bontrager has said that some of us need to stop fixating on looking for demons hiding behind every bush, while others of us need to admit and believe that there probably is a demon hiding behind every bush. In the first 11 chapters of Revelation, John has exposed for us the human persecution that comes upon the church. And in chapters 12 through 22, especially 12 through 15, 4, he is going to highlight the demonic and satanic influence behind the human persecution of the church. God, through Jesus to John, is calling you and I to look behind the curtain of history and see the cosmic battle that plays out in the relationship between the church and the world. And I will warn you, the visions can be vivid and terrifying. But God does not leave us with the fear and the horror. We are taught throughout this vision that Jesus and the church are triumphant and that the defeat of the devil has been accomplished and is secure. This mini vision that opens this fourth vision proclaims these truths boldly in a way that grabs the attention of the reader. In this chapter, John shows us the history of the church and the defeat of Satan. First, the history of the church. I have Two memories. I have memories of two specific history professors throughout my education career. I'm I'm sorry to say I don't really remember the name of the first professor. I took his American history class in my first or second year of college. 
And all I can remember of that class is that it was long, it was breathless, it was mind-numbing as he droned on about the dates and names, and he did nothing to inspire the imagination. He sucked the joy and excitement out of our American history. The second professor, I do remember his name. His name was Dr. Frank James, and I had him for two semesters in seminary. He was our church history professor, telling us the history of the church from 100 A.D. to the beginning of the 20th century. Now, Dr. James was far from dull and joyless as he taught us the history of the church. As you listen to Dr. James, you could almost hear the fathers of the church in that first 500 years as they solidified the theology taught within the scriptures and, and, and condensed them down into some of the early creeds and confessions. You could almost feel the pounding of the hammer as Martin Luther nailed his theses to the door of the church and you were inspired to follow Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians in their missionary endeavors. Church history came alive with Dr. James. In this chapter, John receives a vision of the church that is so vibrant and alive that Dr. James' lectures on church history would seem to be more like the nameless American history professor I had in my first or second year of college. And these vibrant and alive visions are given to us to show us, to show John the history of the church from God's perspective. Chapter 12 opens with a vision of a woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon and wearing the victor's crown made of 12 stars. We see this woman in all of her radiance, in all of her glory that comes because she, like Joshua from our reading earlier today in Zechariah 3, she is clothed with a righteousness, with a glory that is not her own. As you and I struggle with our call to live a holy life, oftentimes we can get tripped up by our own sin and, we'll, and can, be, can be tricked by the deceptions of the devil to think that, you know, God only sees me as, as Isaiah 65 says, as, as covered in filthy rags. But the truth is when God looks at his church, he sees a, glor a woman arrayed in all the majesty and glory of her righteousness, of Christ's righteousness. But we would do ourselves a disservice if we stopped right there with this particular picture in this vision of this woman. We need to look at the symbolism that God gives to John and he to us as we look at her. She is crowned with the sun and the moon and the stars are the source of this radiance. Where was the last time or where is one of the times in the Old Testament where we see the sun and the moon and the stars gathered around one person? It's in, it's in Genesis chapter 37 as Joseph is having his dream. His dream is of the sun, the moon, and 12 stars bowing to him. And it's a picture that plays out in his lives as the family comes to Egypt after he has been sold into slavery to Egypt and they bow to him as they are seeking food, as they are seeking sustenance in the midst of a famine. And what God is showing us here is the complete history of the church from the Old Testament church, the Old Testament people of God, the, the seed of Abraham, all the way through to the New Testament people of God. And he's showing us the picture of what happens to that church throughout the history of that church. And what happens to that church is the next symbol that we see in here, which is the great red dragon. The, 
dragons, when we see and think about them in the scripture, when they are revealed to us, both in, here in Revelation, these are, are not the, the fun dragons of, of a Disney cartoon. These are horrendous, terrifying beasts who wreak destruction wherever they are pointed. This should bring us great fear as this dragon stands before the pregnant woman who is getting ready to give birth to a son, waiting anxiously to devour the child. All the way from Genesis 3.15, which is referenced in the two places in this passage where the, where the dragon is described as a serpent who deceives, a serpent who accuses. All the way back from Genesis 3.15, we are told after Adam and Eve sin that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent as the seed of the serpent bruised the heel of the seed of the woman. And from that moment on, even in the Garden of Eden prior to that, the great serpent who grows up to be the dragon of Revelation has been seeking to devour those whom God has set apart to bring about the seed of the woman so that the serpent, the dragon, would be defeated. Cain is presented in the Genesis account as the seed of the serpent, while Abel is initially presented as the seed of the woman. And what happens to Abel by Cain's hand? He is destroyed and God raises up Seth. Ten generations later, what situation do we find in the world? We find a world filled with people and one eight-person faithful family, the family of Noah. And even they stumble and fall into sin. Abraham is called out, shown as the seed of the woman. And almost immediately after his call, he falls into sin and deception. We run through the patriarchs and and the mess that was their life prior to going to Egypt and being forgiven by Joseph. We run through Moses and the nation of Israel after Egypt has attempted to destroy the nation of Israel. And they end up in the wilderness, almost destroying themselves. They get to the promised land. They, they settle in the promised land. And yet the idolatry of the nations around them infiltrates. If we were to follow the nation of Israel through its history, we would see kings fall. We would see nations fall. We would see them drug into exile at the hand of different nations. All of those things is is the serpent, the, the dragon seeking to destroy God's chosen people. And yet God uses it for his glory. He uses it for their discipline and he protects them until the child is born. And we even see Herod after the child is born seeking to destroy the child and the destruction of the children in Bethlehem. The ancient serpent who is arrayed against the church today has been arrayed against God's people from from the time of the creation. He has been seeking the destruction of the seed of the woman. And for a brief moment in time, he thought he had succeeded. After the child is born and the child grows up, the, the child begins to teach and to preach, he, he, he proclaims repentance for the kingdom of God is at hand. The religious leaders don't like it and they conspire against him and they arrest him. They take him before Pilate. They find him guilty of blasphemy and they have Pilate crucify him on the cross. 
And I'm sure that there was a period of time, brief though it may have been, I'm sure that there was a period of time between Good Friday and Resurrection Day where Satan said, I got it. I won. For generations and millennia, I have been warring against the people of God. God sent the Son, but now I have triumphed. How gloriously wrong Satan was. In his gospel, John frequently talks about Jesus being exalted. Jesus being lifted up. But most of the time when he is talking of Jesus' exaltation, Jesus being lifted up, the first step is the cross. The first step is the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in that defeat from an earthly perspective that God has victory over Satan. And this truth is shown for us as as the as a dragon awaits the child. He is snatched up to God and to his throne. He is lifted up to God's throne room. And his ministry is summarized for us there to highlight the defeat of the devil. After this, the woman shifts our picture of the woman. It's the same woman. It's the same woman crowned with the stars, clothed with the sun, standing upon the moon. She leaves to the wilderness where God has prepared a place for her. And we notice here as she leaves for the wilderness, as she leaves for the desert in verse six, she goes there so that she can be taken care of. She can be nourished. She can be fed. She can find rest. We oftentimes don't think of the wilderness as a place of rest. You and I view the wilderness as a place of of torments, as a place of hardship. And oftentimes from a human perspective, it is. But the wilderness is where God shapes his people. It's where God molds his people for his service. As Israel left Egypt as slaves, they entered the promised land as an army. And in 1 Kings 17 and 19, Elijah flees for his life, scared and depressed, and he finds nourishment and rest. In 1 and 2 Samuel, we see David fleeing, whether it's from Saul's attacks or Absalom's attacks. We see David fleeing to the wilderness. And yet it is there in the wilderness where we get some of the the most poignant of the Psalms, some of the, the deepest anguish that still finds hope and peace and rest in God in the Psalms. And so God prepares a place for us in the wilderness where we can be shaped and molded for his service, where you and I can be drawn closer to him, made more and more like him and remade more and more in the image of God. But notice the serpent is not done. The dragon is not finished with his attacks. He he did not give up after the child was snatched and a woman went to the place prepared for her in the desert. He continues his attack. She has been taken there on eagle's wings. The place has been prepared for her where she would be taken care of for a set period of time. That time that is given to us in Daniel as a symbol of the persecution of God's people. We see a lot of Daniel in this particular passage. And the serpent follows. And he attacks. He tries to flood out the church. He spews this water. Some commentators see it as a poisonous water that is seeking to drown the church. And it's symbolic of Satan's war on the church, the people of God throughout history, both before Christ and now in the New Testament area era. But notice a couple things about these attacks. Number one, they're futile. 
He attacks with floods and the the floods are swallowed up by the earth so that they do not harm the woman and her offspring in the wilderness. What good does it do for Satan to use water to try for worldwide destruction? Does absolutely no good. Think back to Genesis 8 and 9 after the flood. God brings Noah and his family out of the ark and he sets his bow in the sky. It's it's not meant as a flag for some type of bragging about sin. It's a reminder that God will not judge the world through water ever again and he will be faithful to his promise. So for Satan seeking to use Large-scale floods to destroy the church shows the futility of his attacks against the church. Storms may rage, rivers may rise, but they are limited in the harm that they can bring. And this means anything that Satan uses against the people of God has already been defeated. And that includes death. Oftentimes we look at the church in the persecuted world and we see Christians falling to the sword. Dying in prison because they've been denied food or they've been locked up in conditions that that we wouldn't put our worst enemy or the most hated animal in. And we think how horrific that they have died. But what message have we seen in Revelation so far and will continue to be revealed for us as we march through the next 11 chapters? It's that death here on earth is glorification in the presence of God. The seeming defeats of this earth for the people of God are actually victories. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that death no longer has any victory for the people of God. The sting of death has been removed for the people of God. Satan's attacks against the church are futile. And secondly, he can't be everywhere at once. He spews his, his, his water at the church for a time. And when he sees that it's futile, he gives up and goes to attack another part of the offspring of the woman, another part of the church. The attacks of Satan against local churches are temporary. They are hard. They are difficult. But they are temporary. And as he sees the futility of these attacks, he moves on. In John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman. He tells her salvation comes from the Jews. His point was that God called and preserved the Israelites throughout their history so that the Messiah would come and bring salvation to the world. After Jesus' life, his death, his ascension, it became explicit that the true people of God were marked by faith rather than by genetics. We read through Galatians 3. Read through Galatians 3 sometime later on today and see where Paul talks about the true seed of Abraham as those who have believed in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's not a denial of the importance of the Old Testament nation of Israel, but it is a reminder that God will not determine your entry in heaven based on anything other than your response to his message. The message that Jesus died for sins and rose again so that you could be reconciled to God. The history of the church from from Eden to heaven to new heavens and new earth is full of the attacks of Satan. But we are assured of his defeat. The snatching up of the child to the throne of God sets off a series of events that don't go well for the dragon. 
First, he goes into battle against the angel Michael. In the book of Daniel in chapter 10, verses 13 and 21, Michael is the prince who defeats the powers that oppose the nation of Israel. In Daniel chapter 12, Michael is revealed to be the heavenly protector of Israel. And in Jude chapter 9, Michael directly battles with the devil. In the Daniel, the destruction of the stars is a picture of the persecution of God's people. And it is Michael is the one who swoops in to protect the people of God. Michael steps in to battle against Satan and to limit his influence. Prior to the creation of the earth, we know that Satan rebelled against God and he and the angels that followed him were expelled from heaven. But in places like Job 1 and 2 and Zechariah 3, which we read earlier, we see that Satan still has some access to God's throne room. And he's there to accuse the righteous. In Job 1 and 2, God says, have you seen my righteous servant Job? And Satan says he's only righteous because you give him all this stuff. We read in Zechariah 3 that the the high priest Joshua was standing before God being accused by Satan because of his sin and his failures. We see here that Satan has been hurled from the heavenly throne room and his power to accuse has been replaced by the salvation and the power and the kingdom and the authority of Christ that came with him. Simon Kistemacher points out that Jesus' sacrificial work cleansed that heavenly throne room and Satan is no longer welcomed there which means that he can no longer accuse the saints before God. Remember, when God looks at you, he sees the radiant, the victorious church. But Satan is a liar and an accuser, and it's not going to be until Revelation 20 where we see his final hurling into the lake of fire. So he's still active. He's been limited in his power. He's been limited in his scope, but he's still active, and he's still a liar, and he's still an accuser. So if he can't accuse you before God, he's going to accuse you before yourself. He whispers things to like, like to you like, look at you. You call yourself a Christian and yet you can't even defeat the teeny tiny sins in your life. Or maybe he whispers in your ear, you deserve to be happy. God really could not have meant that particular law to be kept by you because it doesn't make you happy. Satan is still in the business of tempting us to question God's goodness, God's integrity when it comes to our salvation, when it comes to the things he has given in our life. Did God really say is still one of his main tactics. Nothing is new under the sun, brothers and sisters. And there are times when you and I buy into Satan's accusations and into his deceptions. And in these times, the Holy Spirit convicts us, convicts you, convicts me of our sin and moves us to repent. But as Satan is, is moving in his hatred against the church, seeking to deceive us, seeking to accuse us, seeking to shake our foundations, it's important to, for us to remember that verse 7 through 12 teach that he has been defeated. Yes, he's still active. Yes, he can still do damage, but he is defeated. He is the vanquished enemy. He no longer has power over the people of God. He no longer has power to stop the gospel from going to all corners of the earth. And God shows us two very important aspects of what it is that defeated Satan. First is the blood of the lamb. I think most of us who have an understanding of the scripture, most of us who have a 
faith, a belief in the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ toward salvation, get this. Jesus' work broke the bondage of Satan over the people of God. His blood was spilled for the forgiveness of sins, for removing the stain and the um, punishment that comes because of sin. And so it is the blood of the lamb, the life of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb that has defeated Satan. But, but look at what else it is that has defeated Satan. It's by the word of their testimony. And we see later on, it's by the word of their testimony, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Who is they? It's the seed of the woman, as we see in the last half of the last verse. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This was something that hit me as I was going through this. Every time I'm tempted to look at God's law and say, I don't want to do that today. I want to go my own way. And yet by the power of the Holy Spirit and by the power of the blood of the cross, I, 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 I avoid that temptation, not on my own, but only on the help of the Holy Spirit. One more little nail goes into Satan's coffin. Every time you are faithful to the law of God, when you are tempted to sin, one more nail goes into Satan's coffin. Every time I, every time you are, are tempted to compromise God's truth, every time you and I are compromised to say, well, I know there's 10 commandments, but five, out of six, five or six out of 10 ain't too bad. And yet we don't do that. Satan is defeated a little bit more. Every time somebody comes to you and say, what do you believe? And you're, you're tempted to kind of just kind of shave the hard corners off of the gospel and just give them the, the, the pretty package part of the gospel, not all that sin stuff. But every time you're faithful to God's truth, Satan is defeated. It is obedience to God's law and faithfulness to the truth, to the testimony of Scripture, not only that Satan hates, but shows his victory, or shows our victory, excuse me, shows our victory in the face of his deception, in the face of his temptation. And Satan hates that message. Satan hates the message of the gospel. He hates the message of faithful, even unto death, Christians. He will do everything he can to break your obedience, to break your faithfulness. But when you live in faithfulness to the life and testimony of Jesus, you act in victory over Satan. The history of the church is marked by Satan's attempted destruction of the people of God from the moment God created humanity until Jesus returns. But that same serpent, that same dragon, Satan, the devil, the accuser, whatever we call him in Scripture, has been defeated by the blood of the Lamb, by the faithful obedience of the church. And that's important for us to know as we move on in the rest of the book of Revelation. He is defeated now. We're not waiting for some future defeat of the, of the deceiver. He has been defeated now. And he has no power over the people of God. This chapter reminds us that the Christian life is a life of spiritual warfare. But what does this spiritual warfare look like? It looks like loving and praying for your enemies. We're not likely in our cultural context to come under physical persecution. 
but we are tempted daily, hourly, to compromise God's truth just to fit in, just, to, just on the hopes that maybe that person on Facebook won't, won't verbally berate me so much anymore. I'll, I'll just shave this rough corner off the gospel so that maybe they'll just give me a break for a minute or two. God says, don't compromise the truth, love and pray for those who persecute you. Spiritual warfare in our context also looks like understanding that your homes were given to you by God. And your homes are places where strangers become neighbors. And neighbors ultimately, hopefully, prayerfully become fellow believers or family. And that our homes are the places where the stranger and the family gather together. Spiritual warfare in this world looks like dying to your desires and wants and picking up that cross of service and sacrifice every day. And finally, it looks like faithfulness and obedience to God's law. Spiritual warfare is difficult, but we fight a battle that has already been won. We fight a war that has already been won. The dragon is defeated. The dragon is cast down. The dragon has no more power over you. And you are and will be victorious as the people of God. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, this is a difficult truth for us to, to, to wrap our minds around oftentimes. The devil is powerful. He's like that angry, abused dog on a chain that if you get within the reach of that chain, we're in trouble. And yet, Lord, he is limited. He's limited by the blood of the child, the blood of the lamb, and he's limited by the obedience and faithfulness of the church. So remind us that we have the blood of the lamb. We have the Holy Spirit to empower us towards obedience and faithfulness. And no matter what that serpent, no matter what that dragon can do to us on this earth, what looks like defeat is ultimately victory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we do leave this place, going about our, our work, our hobbies, our family life, please take this blessing upon you. May the Lord strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. And we do pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.